Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. Let me give you a couple of program notes before we open in prayer, and then we'll pray and then we'll get started. Quick, quick notes. First of all, great to be with all of you this morning. Good morning. Wonderful to see all of you. Good morning. Good morning. I've drawn from a bunch of different sources today. They're all going to be in the appendix. So uh, people like Derek Kidner, Robert Alter, The Bible Project, which I mentioned last week, preceptaustin.org, and of course, Tim Keller that I always refer to. So that'll all be in the appendix. You'll see that we're going to cover some major themes in the text across the uh, whole book of Genesis. And then we're going to breeze through chapter by chapter fairly quickly. And I've got in red, you'll see in notes in red, a couple of the stories that I want to linger on. But here's the other thing. In, in preparing for this talk and getting ready for all this, I got just learned so much about the life of Abraham that I'd never seen before. And I got so excited about it. And so the life of Abraham turned out to me to be not just a series of disjointed stories, but a, a one cohesive story from start to finish. And so I want to get through all that. From the beginning to get to 20, chapter 22, because if we don't get to chapter 22, the climax, it won't hang together like a cohesive story. So usually when we do this, I'll stop and break and I'll have questions and comments Let's stop. Let's pause. Let's talk and discuss. Sometimes I'll throw out questions to all of you to say, how about this question? Think about this and get the discussion going. But this time, if you forgive me and bear with me, I like to hold the questions to the end as much as we can. And I'll try to save a lot of time for that to try to deal with those things. Genesis has a lot of interesting difficulties and divergences and all kinds of things to talk about, a lot of which I, I, don't, I couldn't answer for you anyway. But I want to kind of save a lot of that for the end as much as we can. And we'll get through because I'm super excited about what I wanted to talk about about Abraham today. So with that, let's please open in prayer and we'll get started. Lord, thank you so much for this time together. Thanks that uh, you've given us this opportunity to study your word Thanks for um, life of Abraham and the lessons that he can teach us. Please open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from your law. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, background of the book of Genesis. I was surprised to learn, one of the first surprises was that commentators said that the transition from Genesis 11 to 12 was the most significant transition in the Bible. One commentator said that the transition from 11 to 12 was bigger than the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. I said, really? Yes, Genesis 1 through 11 is all about the creation of the world, God making order out of chaos. And then by the end of Genesis 11, with the Tower of Babel and the scattering of everybody, it's all just to just, just send it back into chaos again. And God had a reboot with Noah in the middle where he found one righteous person and tried to restart. And we're going to start the whole thing over and have that handed down from generation to generation. But it's all petered out. And by the end of Genesis 11, the one commentator said, it's like the candle of faith in the world is no longer, it's not just flickering. It's gone out. It's gone out. And so God finds one person, Abraham, who is in many ways the anti-Noah. Because he's not, with Noah, God found one righteous person to restart everything. And, Noah, and Abram lives in a town called Ur, which is known for its moon worship. And in Joshua, we find that him and his whole family were pagan idol worshipers. So God just finds Abraham and calls Abraham and has him be the, the one through whom he's going to complete his plan of redemption. And the whole pattern 
is creation, fall, redemption. And in many ways, this is the pattern of the whole Bible. Creation, fall, redemption. And of course, you see this here, creation and the fall. And then the plan of redemption is going to start through Abraham and his family. And God's going to bring about his plan of redemption through Abraham and his family. Now, uh, Abraham's life can be summed up like this. God says, go out. And Abraham says, where? And God says, I'll tell you later. He says, you'll be a great nation. Abraham says, how? God says, I'll tell you later. You have a son. When? I'll tell you later. Go sacrifice that son. Why? I'll tell you later. Abraham, the whole story raises some really great questions for us. First of all, how do I balance faith, family, and fortune? And I picked the word fortune because it starts with the letter F, so it would match the other two. But it's the, the, the whole idea of work and family. If you ask your average non-Christian neighbor, how do you balance work, your career, your job, and family? Everyone struggles with that. We, we all struggle with that. How do you balance those things, right? And then, and then you throw in your faith. You say, well, I want to be involved in spiritual things in the church. And now as a Christian, how do I balance faith, family, and fortune? These are timeless subjects. And, and the book of Genesis, Abraham, wrestled with that. And so we'll hopefully get some lessons for that today. And then how do I know God is there? Bigger questions. How do I know God is really there? How do I know that he loves me? How do I know that God sees me, understands what I'm going through? Much deeper questions. Abraham has a lot to say about that as well. So major themes, and they're all going to be on this one page. We'll talk about this and cover just some of the major themes you see in this section of Genesis, but also the whole book of Genesis. Genesis is written like a symphony. I got this from the guys of the Bible Project. Genesis is like a symphony. You go to a great symphony, you listen to a great symphony, and in the first movement, you hear the melody. And then throughout the rest of the symphony, you hear echoes and echoes of the melody. And you say, ah, I remember that. That's the main melody. And it comes back again and again. So here, in the beginning, God walks with Adam and Eve in the garden. And then later, Noah walks with God. Adam and Eve are sent out into the wilderness. And then later, Hagar is sent out into the wilderness. The serpent in the beginning uses deception, and later Abraham and Jacob will both use deception. Noah is saved from great destruction and chaos all around him with a flood, and later Lot, in our reading this week, is saved from the battle all around him and the chaos all around him by uh, Abram. There's also little things in the language that do this as well. For example, when poor Sarah says to Abram, you know, take Hagar, my servant, and sleep with her. Let's produce a child that way. The, the Hebrew text says, Abram, uh, hearken to the voice of his wife. And those exact words are the words that are used to describe what Adam did with Eve when he says, here, take the fruit and eat. And Adam, hearken to the voice of his wife. And when you hear those things, you're meant to say, ah, that's the echo of the symphony coming back. And it happens again and again and again. Genesis 1 through 11 sets up the melody, and everything else just keeps echoing it as you go along. Examples versus recipients. If you look at Abram, and if you had to look at the whole Old Testament, primarily as great examples for us, you'll get completely messed up. If you use that as the way to interpret this, you'll get into all kinds of interpretive error. If you say, I don't get it. These people were the patriarchs of the faith. They're supposed to be incredible examples, and they're doing all kinds of awful things. That's because it's, they're not written primarily as examples to us. They are examples, but they are examples of people who are recipients of free grace. People who are recipients of free grace, who often don't ask for it, they don't seek it, they don't recognize it when it hits them, and they're not particularly grateful for it after it hits them. They're recipients of free grace. But if you don't get this, you get into all kinds of error. I do remember a conversation with a woman I knew who grew up in the Christian faith that walked away, and I was talking to her about it, and she said, you can't believe in the Bible, it's filled with contradictions. Look at those old 
Patriarchs of the Old Testament, they all had multiple wives. What's up with that? What kind of example is that? And she used this example uh, interpretive uh, framework and, and just threw it all away. And so that doesn't make any sense at all. And you read commentators like Derek Kinder, Robert Alter, they'll say, yeah, you know, the, God is not condoning bigamy. God is not condoning polygamy. Every time someone does this, it's always ends up in disaster. They're not examples for us to follow. They're examples of recipients of free grace, despite the fact that they mess up. And it gives us great hope because as we mess up, we can say, well, there's hope for me too. Now, God's plans, human plans. Throughout the whole book, God says, here's my plan. I've got a great plan. And people are constantly messing it up with their own plans. God says, I've got the garden. I want you to live in the garden. Adam and Eve, it's going to be great. I'll walk with you in the cool of the day. We'll be together. And they say, I've got a better idea. And then God says to Abram, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, Sarah. And they say, well, you know, it's not happening fast enough. I get a better idea. We'll find Hagar and do something else. There's constantly God's plans versus human plans contrasted. And it goes through the whole book. And by the end of the book, you get this wonderful verse that Joseph says that says to his brothers who betrayed him. And he gets reunited with them. And he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And that's the theme of the whole book. You've got your plans, even your evil plans messed up. God still works around and uses it together for his, for his good. Older versus the younger. I'm sure everyone talks about this. It's an obvious theme. But uh, in, in a family-oriented culture where the older always had precedence, in fact, a, a culture that was so family-oriented, the firstborn got everything. God is always turning that order all around. So it's always Abel, not Cain. It's Isaac, not Ishmael. It's Jacob, not Esau. It's Ephraim, not Manasseh. Every generation. Even Abraham is not the firstborn. Why is that? God says, my ways are not your ways, neither are your plans, my plans. Uh, we walk by faith, not by sight. But we'll return to this theme as we go along. Speaking of sight, eyes. Eyes are a big theme. So just if you're making a movie of this, one of my favorite movies is the 1982 movie Blade Runner. And in that movie, the eyes are a theme to the whole movie. The opening scene is a picture of a big eye. And the hero of the movie has to decide who's human and who's not human by using a machine that stares into the eye. And at the end, there's a speech by one of the characters. And he says, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. And it's all about the eyes, eyes. And you don't even see it watching the movie until someone points it out. You say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the thing about the eyes. And all through Genesis, Eve looks at the fruit and says, it was good to look at. Abraham says to Lot, you get to choose whichever way you go. And Lot lifted up his eyes and then looked at the land of the Jordan, beheld that it was well watered like the garden of the Lord. And then he leaves and God looks at Abraham and says, lift up your eyes and I'll show you what you're going to inherit, the promised land. Hagar is dying by the side of the road and she lifts up her eyes and she sees a spring. Abraham, when the sacrifice of Isaac, lifts up his eyes and sees a ram upon the thicket. There's always this theme of the eyes, the eyes, the eyes, seeing. And of course, the idea that God is the one who sees. Eyes are a big thing. Maybe you saw that too. Here's another one. Separation versus coming together. Separation versus coming together. Throughout the whole book, things are separated, then they come back together. You probably noticed this in the beginning. Chapter one, God creates the expanse, separating the waters from the waters. Adam and Eve were separated from the garden. Abraham and Lot separate. Then they come back together when Abraham uh, rescues him. Abraham and Sarah separate twice. Then they come back together. Hagar is separated from Sarah. She comes back. She and Ishmael are separated again. And yet at the end of Abraham's life, at his funeral, both Isaac and Ishmael are there burying the father together. Separated, coming together. Separated, coming together. And what's the theme there? Our, our sins have created a great separation between us and the Lord. How are we ever going to come together again? And it's through God's plan of redemption that he's launching with Abraham. That's how it's going to happen. But separation, coming together. Then, trees. 
maybe you saw the firstborn thing. I'm sure you saw that. The eyes. Trees are a major theme in the book of Genesis. I would never have seen this. Uh, there's some great lectures from the Bible Project, two lectures that just talk about this theme of trees in the book of Genesis. Now, when I read this, maybe you did what I did. He says, well, Abraham went and built an altar under the trees of Moray. And then he went over somewhere to the trees of Mamre. And I look at the tree thing and I say, well, it's like, you know, someone giving directions. You know, he went to the big tree, the big oak tree, and he turned left, right? And he went to the other oak tree and he stopped. It's just like someone just giving directions. But the trees are a major theme through the whole book. And so the tree you would think about, obviously, that first comes to mind, is the tree of life in the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So when trees show up again and again, trees are always there to either show a decision point. Someone has to turn to the left or the right. Or they're trying to reconnect. It's, the trees are trying to reconnect. So Abraham goes to the land of Canaan. He first goes there and builds an altar under a tree. And he comes back and he has an altar. It's under a tree. And then he, the angels come. Uh, the three visitors come. The Lord and two angels. And they sit there and he says to Sarah, quick, prepare a meal of cakes. And he feeds it to them. And he watches them eat under a tree. And it's all, it's the symphony. He's trying to recreate the Garden of Eden scene where God is walking with them. In fact, in that passage, it even says God comes in the heat of the day to echo God came in the cool of the day, like in the Garden of Eden. And you're recreating a little Eden scene where they're fellowshiping with God, and it happens under a tree because they're reconnecting. We're not going to dwell on this theme today because I'm not even sure what the life application is. It's just fascinating. and actually shows what a great piece of literature the book of Genesis is. Wordplay. Wordplay. There's so much wordplay in Genesis. So I've always thought, I don't know why people go to seminary, I'm looking for Jim, I don't know why people go to seminary and they have to study Greek and Hebrew. Why do you have to study Greek and Hebrew? There's so much written in the English language, in your native tongue, about the Bible in any language. You don't need to study Greek and Hebrew. But if you study Genesis, you walk away saying, I want to. I wish I knew Hebrew. Because all the commentaries constantly referring to the Hebrew words and the Hebrew language and how interesting it is. And not just the way you think that they might when they say, oh, you read this, but the Hebrew word really means this. It's just, it's just sometimes comical wordplay, like the Harkin thing I talked about a moment ago. But there's examples everywhere. And I, don't, I can't do this justice because obviously I don't know Hebrew, but you hear people talking about it all the time. So the Oaks of Moray, when Abraham comes and he takes an altar at the Oaks of Moray, More is a Hebrew word that is close to the word for being visible. And God shows up. So God is like, it's like God is becoming visible at the oaks of visible. And you wouldn't get that in English. And then later, when he goes, God shows up again at the oaks of Mamre. Well, Mamre is just a Hebrew letters for more scramble in a different way. So this is an imperfect science. I don't know Hebrew, but it's something like God is saying, yes, the next time God shows up, shows up, he becomes visible at the oaks of Vibizet. Just a little word, because there's one Hebrew character that's switched to just remind you, oh yeah, that's the same thing I read before. That happens all the time. One of the nifty ones, when that, that scene where Abram is with the angel, recreating the Eden scene, and they're eating, and they're together, uh, when the, the Lord and two angels come visit him at the tent. Abram uh, pairs a calf, and he says he prepares a calf good and tender. Good and tender. And you read that in English, you say, oh, okay, he prepared you know, some meat, some barbecue, something good and tender. That's nice. Good to know. I guess it was tasty. That's nice. But the good and tender words are the same word. Actually, it's the same words with one character switched from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you're recreating a scene from the Garden of Eden right there and just remind you of that scene. Abram is preparing a calf, good and tender, just like the tree of 
the knowledge of good and evil. That wordplay happens all the time. And it, it's enough to say, dang, I wish I spoke Hebrew. I wish I had studied Hebrew to understand this because people who do seem to have a lot of fun. And then finally, the entire gospel's here. The entire gospel's here. And that's what I really want to get to in Genesis 15 and in Genesis 22 in particular. So like I said, we're going to kind of go through the rest, go chapter by chapter, reach through some chapters in five seconds, so don't be surprised. You'll see some words in red, like I was saying. We'll try to linger there, and we'll try to get through and understand what God is telling us about the gospel and the life of Abraham. So to do this, I'm going to show you this diagram again. I know John had the right side of this up on the screen last, last week. I know I've shown this to you five or six times, so I won't belabor the point. And we have a couple of new guys that maybe haven't seen this before, a couple of you that maybe haven't seen it since I went through it last time, but we're just going to take about, you know, two minutes and review this very quickly. If it's too quick, just come up to me afterwards, we'll go through it and I'll explain it in more detail. But there's basically two ways to live your Christian life. You could say, basically, my Christian life is a, it's all about my moral progression. And if I'm the graph of the Christian life, I can look at the diagram on the left, where I have time on the horizontal axis and holiness on the vertical axis. And what does your life look like? Like It looks like a diagonal line. Starts at the bottom left corner, moves up and to the right. Because the Christian life is all about becoming a better Christian, moral progression. And of course, Jesus is there at the start of your Christian life. That's why the cross is in the bottom left corner, because he's there to start you out give you a fresh start, but then the rest is up to you. And through your hard work and effort, you climb up the line and become a better person and increase your moral performance. That's one way to think about your Christian life. The other way, the more biblical way, the gospel way, is on the right side. And in that view, there are, there's not one line, there are two lines, and they diverge. So there's an upward sloping line, and that line is your growing awareness over time of God's holiness, largely through the act of worship. There's also a diagonal line going down. That is your growing awareness over time of your own sinful nature, how lost and sinful you really are. And that comes through confession and repentance. And there's a gap, a growing gap between those lines, because this way of looking at the Christian life is not through a basically not driven by moral performance. It's not a progression of moral performance. It's a progression of awareness. And so you become more and more aware of the gap between you and the Lord and what it took to close that gap. And of course, that's the sacrifice of the cross. And as you grow, the sacrifice of the cross becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And you're more filled with wonder, awesome wonder at what he did for you. And so on the left side, you have all these arrows, all the things you do in the Christian life, like coming to Bible study. Those are all little steps you do to walk up the line. And on the right side, you still have to do all those things. But all they are doing, your whole Christian life is pointing you back to Jesus, 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 Jesus all the time. And then as a result of that, in proper sequence the dotted line at the bottom. Your life does change. Your life does change, but it's the result of the Christian life, not the point of the Christian life. And it's dotted for a reason. You're not really primarily aware of it. You're not, it's not even primarily your focus. Your focus is always on Jesus and what he did, and that transforms you from the inside out. That's gospel-driven change. I know we've covered this five or six times before, but we had to cover it again because this will be relevant for the life of Abraham. Hopefully, as we'll see as, the, as his life unfolds as we go along. So, chapter by chapter, the call of Abraham, Genesis 12. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this section to you because I'm going to keep interrupting myself. Genesis 12, uh, this majestic, poetic call of Abraham. It all starts here, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your country. Remember, this country was Ur the Chaldeans, the city of moon worship. Go forth from your country and from your relatives 
And, and from your father's house, in a very family-oriented culture, God is explicitly saying, I want you to leave your family and leave your father's house to the land that I will show you. Go out, and I'll tell you later. And I'll make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So he says, those who bless you, I, I will bless. Who curses you, I will curse. I will completely protect you. I will take care of you. And I'm going to use you to make, create a great nation. You're going to have many descendants, right? And you're going to be a great nation that's going to come out of you. Wonderful promise, incredible call, and it's very majestic. And you go to Hebrews, and you read verses like, Abraham heads out, not in the King James, not knowing whither he went, because he was looking for the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Right? It's all majestic. It's wonderful. The call of Abraham. Except that it's not. It's not that clear. It's actually quite convoluted. Because right before this, at the end of chapter 11, you find that Abraham has left Ur of the Chaldeans, and he's traveled only to a city called Haran, which was admittedly 500 miles away. But he hid, they left for Canaan, but got as far as the city called Haran and stopped. And he's traveling with his father and with his nephew Lot, and of course, Sarah, his wife. So he left for the promised land and then stopped in Haran. And the scholars looking at this say, it sounds like he stopped there for not like in a weekend to refresh and refuel. He stopped there for 30 years in Haran and uh, built a life there. And he's traveling with his father and his nephew. So Warren Wearsby comments on this and says, well, how do you make sense of that? Well, it must have been that Abraham told his family about the vision from God and Ur, and the family said, that's a great idea. We're coming with you. So Abraham said, well, what's the harm? I know God explicitly said, leave your relatives, leave your father's house, but come on along. Or Abraham said, well, I know God said that, but in a family-oriented culture, I can't leave your old dad behind. Maybe, maybe I'm his primary caretaker. I can't leave him behind, so everybody come along, come along for the ride. Whatever it is, Abraham compromises right at the start and brings his family along, brings his father along, and brings a lot along. And it's clear that dad is kind of the holdup because he don't, they don't leave Haran until the father dies, and then they progress later to the rest of the way to the promised land, to Canaan. But it's just right at the start, it's not a clear story of this majestic figure who hears the call of God and heads out. He's compromising as he goes. He says, we know I've got faith. Oh, oh, important detail. Haran turns out to be a really great place to make money. Because they, they become incredibly wealthy in Haran. They have lots of servants, lots of stuff. It's a great place to make money. So Abraham looks at his life and he says, well, you know, I've got, I got fortune. I got family. I didn't abandon family. I know God said that thing about leave your relatives, but I got family. That's important. Family is always important. And I got faith because I'm following the call of God. And admittedly, I'm not all the way to the promised land, but I'm making great progress. I have left. We're halfway there, right? These are everything in balance. Everything in moderation. And it's almost like Abraham is saying, Abram at this point, it's almost like Abram is saying, you know, the spiritual thing, you can't be too fanatical, right? I mean, this religious thing, you can't take it too seriously. You got to balance everything, everything in moderation, faith, family, fortune, all together. So finally, dad does die, and then they go the rest of the way to the promised land, and they get there, and now he's there in the promised land. He sets up an altar under a tree. Everything's going to be great. He's in the promised land, fulfilling his mission. God's going to make a great nation out of him. Except it's not. There's a great famine in the land. And when I read about the famine, I mean, for years of reading about it, 
I thought, well, you know, there's a famine. He travels to Egypt. It's an ugly episode with Sarah where he has Sarah lie about the, uh, being a sister. Sarah goes to Pharaoh. That's, that's kind of self-serving. That's kind of ugly. But there was a famine, so he just travels to Egypt. It's all about Egypt's travel to Egypt. It's only reading the commentaries that I realized what a complete and total epic failure this was. So the first half of Genesis 12 was all about the call of Abram. This is about the fall of Abram because the wheels just come off the train. God had said, go to the land of Canaan and I will bless you, make you a great nation. Times get tough. There's a famine. There's nothing to eat. We're out of here. We're going to Egypt. Get to Egypt. God has already said, I will protect you. I will take care of you. Whoever blesses you, I will bless you. Curses you, I will curse. Everyone says, I got to save my own skin. God's plans, my plans. I got a different plan. Sarah, lie for me. We're going to be safe. Right? I, I know God said that, but can't trust that. So they're over there. And then it's, it's, but it's worse than that because God has said, I'm going to create a great nation out of you. You're going to have many descendants. Well, who is Abram going to do that with? Sarah. And he just gave Sarah away. So it's like Abraham looks at the promise of God and says, Yeah, you know that promised land thing? You can keep that. And the whole promise of God to create this great nation. What, what about that? He says, yeah, all that stuff, you can keep that too. I'm done. I'm done. You can have it done. All that wonderful promise business, I'm done. And, it, and actually, it turns out really well for Abram materially. So the fortune things works out great because Pharaoh obviously loves Sarah and keeps giving Abraham stuff. And so he gets really wealthy, even more wealthy than he was. Egypt, so it's turning out really great. So it, it, he's ditched his faith. He's ditched family because he, he ditched his own, his own prosperity, even having children and, and that. He has a lot, I suppose, but compromised family, but he's got fortune. And you keep reading chapter 12 and thinking at some point Abram's going to wake up and say, what have I done? I've got to go back. to. I've got to get Sarah back. I've got to get back on track. But he doesn't. God has to come to Pharaoh. God goes to Pharaoh and says, this woman is not your wife. And the Pharaoh goes to Abram and says, what have you done? Pharaoh plays the role of Nathan the prophet. What have you, what have you done? And then Abram wakes up. And then he does wake up because the Bible says in chapter 13, he goes right back to Canaan. Mark is all the way back there. And he doesn't just go back to Canaan. He goes right back to the very spot where he had last fellowship with God, to the very altar he had built when he was first in Canaan. So he's trying to reconnect with God. So there is a moment of repentance somehow in Abram's life where he says, I blew it spiritually. I got to get back on track. But, it, but until then, just chapter 12 is just a disaster for, for him spiritually. But by chapter 13, thankfully, he's spiritually back on track and making spiritual progress. So then what happens? Genesis 13, Abram and Lot separate. They've got a problem. They're getting too wealthy. The land can't support both of them, Abram and Lot. So the obvious answer here is for Abram to say, well, this land can't support us. Let's move on to other land. Let's go somewhere else, right? Abr so Abram is facing the situation. He's got to balance this whole thing of faith, family, and fortune. And he's, he's, he's going to come to the realization that he cannot keep all three. He's got, well, something's got to give. So again, the obvious answer is we'll just move on to other pastors. And at this point, Abram says, no, I'm not doing that. I did that before. I went to Egypt. This time I'm not leaving the promised land. I'm staying here in the promised land, staying in Canaan. That's good. That's spiritual progress, right? Leave Canaan, no. Then he says, tell Lot to leave. This is the one the commentators get stuck on, because they'll say this, this story, just as from a piece of literature, does not make sense. 
Abraham is the patriarch. He's the older one. In a family-oriented culture, he could have just looked at Lot and said, Lot, let me tell you how this is going to go down. You're going over there. I'm going over here. You take this dry, arid land over here. I'm taking the lush green land over here. That's the way it's going to be. And Lot would have done it. But why doesn't Abraham do that? Because he would have torched his family relationship forever with Lot. So he says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not leaving the promised land. I'm not telling Lot to go away. I know. I'll give Lot the choice. And the commentators, look, at it. it's such an obvious choice, right? He knows what Lot's going to do. Hey, do you want this arid, dry, mountainous land over here? Or do you want that lush green valley over here? Up to you. <laughs> Lot says, well, you don't have to ask me twice. I lifts up his eyes, sees the land of the Jordan, well watered. I'll take that there land over there. Thank you very much. And Abraham has, by making that choice, he's preserved family, he's preserved his faith, but he's put his fortune at risk because now he has to have his growing flocks and all that on the dry air land of the mountains, right? But that's the choice he's making. So jeopardizes his own fortune. Then what happens? There's a war down in the valley. We'll cover this one really quickly. There's a war down in the valley, four kings against five. Abram, thankfully, is up in the mountains watching, doesn't get involved in the brouhaha down in the valley. The horrible route, right? And the uh, kings uh, come from other places and they defeat the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then someone from the battle comes up and says, Abram, Lot was taken away. Abram is furious. He gets 318 men and maybe some others as well. Text isn't clear. Runs down there and defeats the kings who are victorious in the battle and rescues Lot. Now, just a couple of quick things to note. Well, one is that it's easy to miss. He's actually fighting on behalf of the kingdoms of Sodom and Gomorrah. He is rescuing their lot. He's there to rescue Lot, but he's fighting on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he has a conversation with the king of Sodom at the end, where the king of Sodom comes by and says, look, you win. Thank you very much. You can have all the stuff. It's your plunder. You want it fair and square. I just want my people back. And Abram says, no, I won't do it. You can have the stuff. I'm not going to have people say, you may be rich. You can keep your stuff. And it's not clear, but he lets the people go back to Sodom, too. He doesn't take the people of Sodom as slaves or anything like that. So he says, you can have the people. You can have the stuff. I don't want it. That's spiritual progress. He says, this fortune thing, I'm not going to let it rule my life. You can have it. And then this character, Melchizedek, comes by. And Abraham says, well, I don't really know who you are. You came from Salem. Okay. It's modern day it's Jerusalem. But this character, Melchizedek, comes and gives him a blessing. And Abram says, I'm going to give you a tenth of everything. Here you go. So Abram would look at this and say, whatever this means, I'm not sure exactly what that means. I'm not sure who that actually was. But my spiritual life is really getting on track. I got a blessing. God blessed us. We won the battle. I'm, I don't need this stuff. My spiritual life is moving. I'm really making progress here, right? Great story. And then the covenants. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.